One thing um, through my health expert lens that I've been feeling is just so much frustration. We have been documenting and pointing to the existence of health disparities by race and ethnicity for years now. Hello, Pulse Check listeners. This is Dan Diamond, and welcome to our special Pulse Check series on the coronavirus outbreak. Today, I'm in conversation with Samantha Artiga, who heads up the Kaiser Family Foundation's work on health disparities. Coronavirus has been a health crisis, an economic crisis, for some time now, but it is increasingly clear that the virus is also disproportionately affecting Black and Brown Americans who are getting sick and dying at higher rates. And there's now another layer to this story. As Americans take to the streets to protest the death of George Floyd and deeper issues of racial inequity, I wanted to hear from Samantha about how these two crises intersect. Samantha Artiga, welcome to Politico Pulse Check. Uh, thanks for having me here today, Dan. When COVID 19 initially hit, there was a push to call it the great equalizer. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, singer Madonna, Healthcare executives, they were all making the claim that the virus was striking people of all races, backgrounds, and income levels. But as more data has become available, it seems clear that COVID-19 has only magnified the systemic inequalities in the United States. And non-white Americans, especially Black Americans, have been hit hard on nearly every front. So is COVID the great equalizer? And, And if not, how do you think about it? So COVID-19, as an infectious disease, um, puts everyone at risk. But what we are really seeing with the pandemic is that it has brought uh, longstanding uh, health, social, and economic disparities into really sharp focus. Um, And because of those underlying disparities, the pandemic is having um, very disproportionate impacts on people of color. Um, And as you mentioned, in particular for black Americans, Um, we see that in the data where um, in the majority of states that are reporting data, black Americans uh, make up a higher share of cases and deaths relative to their share of the total population in those states. Um, And in a number of cases, those disparities are really striking, Um, for example, with deaths among uh, Black Americans making up three to four times more than their share of the populations in those states. We have a number of states um, where Black individuals account for more than half of COVID-19 related deaths. And in the the District of Columbia, that share reaches over um, 75%. Um, so the the effects of the pandemic are being felt unequally and um, hitting communities of color and in particular Black Americans hard. Given how it's hitting those communities, what information do you still need, do leaders still need to understand how it's affecting those populations? 
Well, I think there really has been a growing call for more data on how the virus is impacting different communities and different individuals. At the outset, there was not a lot of data to really inform this understanding of the differential impacts by race and ethnicity. Uh, That data has continued um, to improve over time, but there are still a number of gaps and inconsistencies in it that make it difficult to interpret and to compare across states and to really get a full national picture. Uh, Those data are really key not only for understanding who's being impacted and where, but also then for how we target and guide response and relief efforts um, to those affected communities. Um, So where do we direct resources to meet the greatest need? How do we direct those resources? Um, Who is um, reaching out to those communities? Uh, Because we know um, from the past uh, uh, that it's really important that that outreach be conducted by individuals who are trusted in the community. Um, We also know that um, it's important to make those resources readily available um, to those communities that are being impacted. So making testing easily accessible and ensuring that um, individuals know that they can get that testing at no cost. Um, I think, again, really what this is highlighting, though, is much of the underlying health, social, and economic disparities that have been longstanding and persistent for communities of color and particular um, black Americans. And so what we're seeing with COVID-19 really just mirrors and compounds a set of factors and challenges that were already in place. And and are getting even more attention in the middle of a national moment where we talk about racial inequity. Um, Just one or two more questions on on COVID-19. We have talked on this podcast, we've done reporting at Politico on the incomplete nature of some of that information on minority populations. And, and you study this every day. Do you see those information inconsistencies that you mentioned as errors of omission or, or errors of commission? Basically, is the Trump administration just failing to do something Um, in the middle of a response where there have been a lot of failures? Or is the Trump administration actively trying not to understand and not to highlight how the pandemic is hitting these especially vulnerable populations? Well, I think some of what we saw at the outset with the gaps and lack of availability of data reflect the fact that there are were not strong uh, reporting systems and data collection systems in place that were designed uh, to readily collect those data and have them available to help guide uh, understanding of the data. Uh, the outbreak of the disease and where it is spreading, as well as, again, for how we then target and and provide recovery and response uh, efforts. I think um, there was a feeling that the um, release of those data have been very uh, slow. The federal government is now reporting some of those data, but there are still um, a lot of gaps in the data that they're reporting, and and they're lagged relative to what we're seeing um, from some of the states reporting in terms of their own data. How do you think our leaders are doing, Samantha, at addressing the pandemic's risks for communities of color? 
Well, I think that's going to vary across communities. Um, you know, we talked a bit about what we're seeing in terms of the disproportionate impacts on uh, in terms of cases and deaths, but we also can't ignore the disproportionate impacts in terms of the economic toll of the pandemic. And those um, those effects have also been unequal in terms of hitting uh, communities of color and again, black Americans uh, more significantly compared to whites. Uh, black Americans in some of our recent data were more likely to report problems paying bills because of um, coronavirus compared to white individuals. There are also um, are ongoing disparities in access to health care that affect um, individuals' ability to access testing and treatment. For example, we know um, uh, people of color and including black Americans are more likely to be uninsured, which means they're less likely to have a usual source of care, uh, more likely to have concerns about seeking care uh, because they are worried about the cost of that care. Um, so when we're talking about response, I think we need to be looking across all these different factors. Um, I think the the federal government has passed certainly some legislation to uh, make testing available at no cost uh, for individuals, even if they're uninsured, and there have been some resources directed to cover costs of treatment for uninsured individuals. But I think there's still an outstanding question of whether people who are uninsured have um, ready access to testing and treatment, whether they know how they can access those at, um, at affordable costs. Um, and so I think the response continues to be varied across um, communities and locations. And certainly there are some areas that are making very concerted efforts to really reach out to their populations that are being um, most significantly affected in terms of placing testing sites in those communities, conducting really targeted outreach and education to those communities in language and through culturally appropriate and trusted messengers. But that, again, is going to vary across the country. Samantha, we're seeing mass protests over racial inequity. That's driven by the death of George Floyd while he was in the hands of Minneapolis police, though certainly not the only driver. And you wrote this week for the Kaiser Family Foundation about the broader social and economic inequities that contribute to health disparities. Lack of Medicaid expansion in states like Alabama and Texas, for instance. And, and you trace issues back, too, to how stress and trauma can have multi-generational impacts in communities of color. As a health expert, is there a single factor above and beyond the others that concerns you contributing to these racial inequities? Well, I certainly think when we look across the social and economic inequities that are really driving a lot of what we see in terms of the health disparities. One underlying consistent theme to all of that is a long history of racism and discrimination. Many of the systems and policies that are contributing to these social and economic inequities um, are rooted in those in indiscriminatory historic policies and continuing issues that uh, we're facing today. The ongoing residential segregation of black Americans. That means they live in neighborhoods that um, have higher concentrations of poverty, less educational and, and economic opportunities, less access to healthy food choices, 
all of that is going to manifest itself in terms of what we're seeing in health outcomes and health disparities. There's been considerable focus on police brutality, police violence in communities of color that has helped drive the protests. Is police violence a public health problem? I think, again, violence, uh, this police violence, which again is, is reflective of this racism and discrimination, all is a health issue. And in particular, when we talk about violence and racism, there is um, a trauma and anxiety and stress component associated with that that has um, real, real health effects in terms of um, not only emotional distress and mental health impacts, but also physiological impacts on the body that result in um, in physical health impacts that can be long-lasting. For example, there's a lot of research in particular looking at children who experience um, toxic stress or trauma that they have long-term negative um, physical and mental health outcomes over their lifespan that lasts into adulthood. Um, And there are a lot of more expert researchers and scholars who focus on these particular issues of the relationship between trauma and stress and health um, that can speak much more eloquently um, to these issues. But I think there is a unique um, link and in between health and these issues of uh, trauma and stress. In your new Kaiser Family Foundation piece, you wrote that, quote, the increased recognition and understanding of disparities could provide a catalyst for the challenging work required to address them as these protests rage and as people talk about the factors driving them. Not to be pessimistic, but really? Like, after all the years of these incredibly difficult challenges being largely stuck on the back burner— Do you really think that this is a moment where there could be a breakthrough? So, you know, when I've been watching what's going on, I'm, of course, feeling many different things personally and emotionally. But one thing um, through my health expert lens that I've been feeling is just so much frustration about the fact that we have been documenting and pointing to the existence of health disparities by race and ethnicity for years now. Um, And despite that documentation and recognition, um, they have persisted. In some cases, they've widened. Um, And so I think there is a really important potential opportunity here to use what I think is really a very unique time of public understanding of those disparities, um, what their implications are, and what they are being driven by to really try and push forward um, some progress in terms of trying to address those longstanding disparities um, and advance health equity. But um, I think it is challenging. There's a reason that there hasn't been been progress, and it's because um, they are very challenging since you have to reach in to these much broader social and economic spheres to affect change and because it really has to be done at a systemic level. Um, you can only get so far if you're trying to address the social needs of one individual. Um, what we really need is to think about how there can be um, changes at a more 
systemic level to address some of these longstanding disparities. And you've been doing this work for 10 years, 15 years? 20 years. 20 years. Okay. <laughs> so so you've seen moment after moment come. I mean, did you think after after Ferguson, the protests in Ferguson, was that a moment when you thought maybe there would be a breakthrough? I think we are in a unique time where I feel like there is such a more broad-based recognition and understanding of these disparities um, and how they cut across all different uh, sectors. So not just in the healthcare sector, but again, looking to other uh, social and economic areas in terms of where there might need to be change to influence health disparities. Um, So I think the broad-based recognition and understanding of of this current time is unique, um, as well as really the heightened understanding of what the implications are from these disparities as we're seeing manifested in the COVID-19 pandemic. This pandemic has been a stressful moment for so many of us. I, I know it's been hard for me as a health reporter. There has been no let up, which in some ways is important and clarifying. I know that there is a story for me to write every single day. At the same time, there is a story to write every single day. And I feel like when I'm not working, I, I am missing the moment to be doing my job, to be doing what I got into my line of work to do. You are someone who has spent 20 years in this healthcare disparity work. You have been dealing with issues related to the pandemic. Now we are in a moment focused on racial inequity. There's a collision there. How have you been able to cope and deal with this moment and what it is asking of you? Um, Again, I'm just trying to do whatever part I can, I think, to raise the the understanding of disparities, why they occur, and what their implications are, and how that is being evidenced by the COVID-19 pandemic. I think um, similar to this providing uh, an opportunity to move forward with efforts to advance equity, um, it's really provided some momentum, again, for increased focus on these these issues. Um, And you know, in terms of my work, I want to uh, make sure that we are really documenting what's occurring, um, what's driving it. But I also want to make sure that we're pushing forward and thinking about how this can be used as an opportunity to achieve progress going forward and, and really thinking about some of what that hard work needs to look like um, in terms of how Uh, We can prioritize addressing disparities and advancing equity um, across sectors, um, how resources can be directed to address disparities and advance equity. And then I think there's also um, a really important component about making sure um, we're listening to the affected communities and that they are part of this discussion in terms of listening to them about what the problems are, what the challenges are, and what the potential solutions are from their perspective. But just like human to human, are, are you okay? I mean, you're writing about things that are incredibly depressing to begin with, and then your work is illustrating that these disparities are, are getting worse at the worst possible time. 
You know, I think like you, because my work focuses on the pandemic and disparities, um, pretty much 24 hours a day, I'm thinking about uh, these issues. I wake up thinking about these issues. I go to bed thinking about these issues. I'm finding myself dreaming about um, some of these issues. Um, So it's certainly a difficult time. What I have really been doing is focusing on my children and It's been a really challenging, but I think very important time to educate them about what they're seeing, what they're living through, and what the meaning of it is all for them and the next generation. In particular, uh, with my disparities work, it's, it remains really important to me personally when I look at my children and think about their rich multicultural family heritage and what kind of world um, they'll, I want them to grow up in and live in as adults. Thanks for being so thoughtful, by the way. Public health experts spent weeks, months, trying to convince Americans to stay inside, to take other steps to avoid any risk of spreading COVID-19. Now, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands— I. I don't even know the number at this point. Americans are spilling into the streets for mass protest. How worried are you about these protests coming in the middle of a pandemic? Certainly the gatherings of people in close proximity for the, the protests, as well as um, if we're seeing people now being placed in jails, which are high risk areas for spread and were areas that were experiencing outbreaks um, prior to the protests, uh, there is a risk of increased exposure. I think um, there's still a lot of questions about what that um, what that is going to look like and how wide the potential outbreak may be that um, is spurred by those, uh, those gatherings. Um, but I think since we know that there is an increased risk. Again, there's an opportunity to try and take some proactive steps to direct resources where we know there has been increased risk of exposure. So again, thinking about how we can make testing readily available to people who have been at increased risk of exposure um, and what kind of supports can be put into place to enable them to quarantine or isolate um, if they are exposed to the virus. Again, this will go back to all the inequities. There's a lot of variation in the extent to which um, people are able to um, take those steps to quarantine and isolate um, if they are exposed. So um, it's all circular and comes back um, to itself in terms of uh, if we want to uh, protect individuals and we want to minimize spread of the disease, it's important that we address those gaps and inequities so that all individuals are able to take those kinds of protections. Yes or no, these protests will lead to COVID-19 outbreaks in the communities of people who are protesting. I don't know that I'm expert enough in from a clinical and public health perspective to, to give you a definitive answer on that. I would defer to um, other colleagues on that. Fair enough. We've discussed so many of the factors contributing to disparities in this pandemic and how it's hitting communities of color. Looking forward on where we go next, what are the possible trouble spots? What are the opportunities, Samantha, that you're still aware of? Well, again, I think... We also need to be looking forward to 
what happens once treatments are established or a vaccine is developed and thinking through how treatments and vaccines are distributed and made accessible in a way that also takes into account uh, equity and ensuring that there are not um, certain communities or people who are left out and facing increased barriers or challenging to accessing those treatments or a vaccine once one is developed. Samantha Artiga, thank you so much for joining the conversation. Thanks so much, Dan. I really appreciated the opportunity to talk with you today. All right, that's our show. I'm Dan Diamond, and my thanks to Samantha Artiga of the Kaiser Family Foundation for joining me. Listeners can check the show notes for links to Samantha's recent analysis of racial inequities in healthcare. Our producers are Annie Reese and Jeremy Siegel. Jenny Ament is our senior producer, and Irene Noguchi is our executive producer. Subscribe to Politico Pulse Check on your favorite podcast app, and you can help us by leaving a rating or review that helps new listeners find the show. You can find Politico's coverage of the coronavirus in two different newsletters, the Politico Nightly Newsletter, which comes out every evening and recaps the day's stories on coronavirus, and in Politico Pulse, which I co-author every morning and sets up the news ahead. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back with you again very soon.